How's that? There we go. That'll work. Some of you guys have been looking at the book of Joshua and thinking to yourself, now, we only got as far as, basically, we got to about 12, and there's a whole lot left. But um, quite frankly, we're, we're only going to do three more sessions in Joshua. Uh, because what you've got, the, the, the remaining third of Joshua, basically, uh, and when I say that, I mean verses, uh, or chapters 13 to 21, they are now in the promised land, and in those chapters, uh, Joshua is going to divide the land. That's what it's all about. Uh, the tribes are each going to get their allotment, they're going to get their real estate. Uh, r really what you have going on in this section of Joshua is you've got title company documents. Uh, when, when you go to buy a house and you go to closing, uh, you don't go down to the title company for 15 minutes, but you're down there for at least an hour, maybe a little bit longer, and you're initialing and you're signing and you're, it just takes forever. That's, that's a big portion of what um, the last section of Joshua is all about. It is uh, the record of the land and the property and the uh, allotment that was given to the tribes. And this was very important stuff because you see throughout the Old Testament uh, uh, warnings that are given uh, quite frequently where they are told not to move the ancient boundaries. You don't want anybody messing with your property. They didn't want anybody messing with their property. We have an interesting deal tonight because as they are actually apportioning the land and giving it out to the different tribes, it actually starts in Joshua 13 because uh, there were some tribes, uh, actually it was Reuben and it was Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, that if you recall, asked Moses if they could set up on the east side of the Jordan, and he said, yeah, you can do that as long as you help the other tribes fight when we go into the West Bank. So in chapter 13, you have got the settlement of the eastern side of the Jordan with those two and a half tribes. Then they move to settling what we call the West Bank, the rest of the Promised Land. That's in Joshua chapter 14. Uh, let's take a look at that. Because as they're getting ready to do that in Joshua, uh, something comes up that sort of interrupts the process a little bit. Um, let me get to Joshua chapter 14, page 179. Thank you very much. That was extremely helpful. Now, these are the territories which the sons of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel apportioned to them for an inheritance. Now, catch this. By the lot of their inheritance, as the Lord commanded through Moses for the nine tribes and the half tribe. The other two and a half tribes were dealt with in chapter 13. Now you got the other nine and a half tribes being dealt with here. Uh, for Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half tribe beyond the Jordan, but he did not give an inheritance to the Levites among them. Uh, jump down to verse 6. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. Let's just stop right there for a minute. Here's what's happening. They are finally getting ready to apportion the land. 
and they've taken care of the east side, the two and a half tribes. Now they're going to deal with the rest of the tribes. And as they're getting ready to do that, Caleb steps up and says, Joshua, you remember what happened back at Kadesh Barnea. What happened at Kadesh Barnea? This goes back a long, long ways. This goes back to the whole situation when they were first coming out of the promised land, out of Egypt, and going into the promised land, and 12 spies were chosen from each of the tribes. Uh, Joshua and Caleb were selected as uh, part of the 12 spies, and they went into the land to do a reconnaissance mission. Uh, what, what we're going to do here is that we're going to, tonight, look at the life of Caleb. Uh, it's contained in a very short period of uh, verses in the middle of chapter 14. But as they're getting ready to apportion the land, he reminds Joshua of a promise that was made to him. A promise that he had been holding on to for approximately 45 years. Uh, it was a long wait. It was uh, a long time in coming. It was something that he thought about probably every day of his life for 45 years. And he brings it up to Joshua. And before we hit it specifically, what I want us to do is, I, we're going to take kind of a bird's eye view of, uh, of Caleb tonight. Caleb was a great man of God, uh, a great warrior for God. Uh, uh, his life, I think, contains a lot of lessons for us uh, as to what the Christian life often looks like. Um, because, you know, uh, you're looking at a guy that's towards the end of his life, as we'll see here in just a minute. Uh, he's got a lot of miles on his tires. He's, he's had a lot of experiences. He's taken a lot of shots. He's taken a lot of blows. He's had a lot of disappointment. He's had a lot of heartache. He's had a lot of uh, uh, expectations dashed in his life. Um, and before we actually jump into this, the rest of the text, uh, I, I, want us, I want us to look at, at his life, because his life breaks up into about three sections. Um, the first section would be this. It's, it's basically from his birth until about the age of 40. Um, if you notice the text here, he says, he says in verse 6 to, to uh, Joshua, he says, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. Um, th this is... Uh, this was the pivotal event of his life and of Joshua's life. Uh, flip back with me to Numbers 13. Uh, Numbers 13 gives the account of, of what happened in, uh, in, in Caleb's life that was to affect him for the rest of his life, and basically it happened just about in the middle of his life. Uh, it was something that was totally unforeseen. It was a time where he had tremendous optimism and tremendous hope, and he, quite frankly, had a tremendous future. But because of unbelief, not on his part, but on the part of some other men, uh, there was a devastating blow that took place in his life. Uh, Numbers 13, in verse 2, we see the instruction from the Lord where he told Moses to send out 12 men to check out this land. 
Now, they had just come out of Egypt. Um, they, um, these people have been slaves. You know, when you study somebody's life, uh, I, I've mentioned to you before, there's a guy named Robert Clinton who has spent probably 25, 30 years studying leadership from a Christian perspective. And uh, Robert Clinton uh, has studied contemporary leaders. He studied leaders in the scriptures. He has studied leaders uh, in church history. And he, he sees patterns that men walk through. He sees patterns of development that God takes men through to be spiritual leaders in their lives. It, it, it's amazing. Uh, you know, you can, you can take courses on early childhood development because we know that kids go through particular phases as they move through childhood. Uh, it, it appears that men go through similar kinds of phases. There are marked chapters. There are marked boundaries that God tends to take men through in developing them uh, to become men of God. Uh, one of the things that Clinton talks about that's interesting when you study somebody's life uh, is to go back to the very beginning. It's what he calls sovereign foundations. Because you see, so much of who you are today uh, has been influenced by the family that you were born into, uh, the economic situation that you were born into, the, uh, uh, the domestic tranquility, to use an uh, uh, American uh, civics lesson phrase, was your family positive? Was your family peaceful? Was there good relationships? Or were there not good relationships? So much of who we are is explained by where we came from. Um, what about Caleb? Caleb was a slave. Um, for the first 40 years of his life, uh, this guy was a slave in Egypt. Um, now, you guys think about that. That's a long time to be a slave. That's a long time slaves don't have a lot of hope. Slaves don't have uh, real strong networks. Uh, slaves don't have a lot of opportunity. Slaves don't go to job fairs. Uh, slaves don't uh, go on and get graduate degrees because they haven't gotten the basic degrees. Uh, quite frankly, as a young man, his life didn't look too good and his future didn't look too bright. Uh, that was the case for anybody uh, who was a Jew back then because they were people that were in bondage. They were people that were enslaved. They were people that, quite frankly, uh, the men would just get up and work. That's all they had to look forward to, knowing that they could never improve uh, their situation for their family. But then God sovereignly works. You know the story of he, he, he brings Moses back. Uh, by the power of God, the different plagues are brought on Egypt. Finally, after this process where Pharaoh says, I'll let you go, and then I won't let you go, and all this, they finally, they finally let him go. Um, they leave. They plunder. Now, here, here's something that's great. These people have been in bondage for over 400 years. When they finally leave, the night that they left, you know what they did? They plundered the Egyptians. What that means is, they took just about everything the Egyptians had. They'd been poor all their lives. They hadn't had a thing. But suddenly, the Egyptians are giving them money and just saying, get out of here, go. Uh, you know, later on, later on, they would collect an offering for the tabernacle. 
Now, you got to ask yourself, where'd that money come from? Where'd those jewels come from? Where'd that gold come from? Where'd that silver come from? Well, it came from the Egyptians when they plundered the Egyptians. Uh, there's just a principle there, and the principle is this, is that when God is ready to bless you, he can bless you quickly, and he can bless you in a moment. God can change things in our lives literally uh, overnight if he so desires. He has that power. He has that ability. These people, for hundreds and hundreds of years, had been absolutely destitute and dirt poor, and through the circumstances that God worked in their lives, they suddenly, they suddenly had more than they had ever had in their entire lives. Not only do they have stuff financially, but now they're, they've got their freedom, and they're headed out to this promised land. They head out to the Red Sea. You know what happened at the Red Sea. Uh, uh, they've got an obstacle. They've got the army behind them. God opens it up supernaturally. They cross through. Pharaoh's army is taken care of. Um, for the first 40 years of his life, Caleb's situation didn't look too good. Uh, none, of, none of their situations look good. But, but there was a reason that God had allowed Caleb uh, to grow up like that. Uh, let me ask you something. When you were in high school, when you were in college, were there not some guys that were your peers that seemed to just absolutely have it together? They, they were kind of the cream of the crop. They were the guys who were voted most likely to succeed. Uh, they were guys that, uh, that just seemed to have the Midas touch. You see, th there are phases that we go through as men. Uh, and all we can do is deal with the phase that we're going through. But God, see, God sees the big picture. And God sees what it is that he is trying to uh, develop in our lives and in our character. He sees what it is that he wants us to become. And here's the interesting thing. You see, God is sovereign over all, all of our lives and over all of our experiences and over all of the issues that come into our lives. He is sovereign over um, uh, your early years. He is sovereign over your uh, earliest chapters uh, in your life. Um, and sometimes it's frustrating because when we're young, and I'm talking about in our 20s, when, when, when we are in our 20s, we've got, a lot of, uh, we've got a lot of juice. And we tend to have a lot of ambition. And we all tend, you guys remember back when you were in your 20s? I know for some of you, you got to, you're going to have to take some medication here to remember. <laughs> but see, in your 20s, you got a lot of ambition, you got a lot of hopes, you got a lot of dreams, you got a lot of goals. Uh, you're going to get something done. You're going to make something out of your life. But usually what happens is um, you run into some difficulty, you run into some setbacks, uh, you don't accomplish your goals on schedule. And that's hard for a guy, especially when you look around and you see some peers and everything's falling their way. Um, Gordon MacDonald, uh, years ago, wrote about what he called the, uh, the, the premature succeeder. Let me read to you what he has to say here. Very insightful. Um, 
He says, as in a race where the naturally talented runner springs from the starting blocks with a blinding burst of speed, there are those who enjoy fast starts in adult life. Not because they are great thinkers or mental giants, but rather because of natural abilities and youthful connections. They may have had the benefit of growing up in a talented family where the people around them were highly communicative and gifted in dealing with ideas and problem solving. As a result, they may have acquired considerable self-confidence at an early age. Uh, such early exposure teaches the young person how to lead, how to compete against others, and how to handle himself in difficult situations. The result could be called premature success. And premature success is often more, now catch this, premature success is often more an obstacle than a help in the long run. The premature succeeder is usually a fast learner able to acquire expertise with minimum effort. He is usually blessed with good health and abundant energy. He can talk his way into or out of anything, it seems. And he may conclude that he can do just about anything he sets his mind to because things appear to come easily to him. How long things can go on this way is anybody's guess. For a lifetime, I suppose, in certain cases. But my observation is that some, somewhere in his early 30s, indications of possible trouble will begin to show in the life of the naturally talented fast starter. There may be the first hints that the rest of the race in life will have to be run on endurance and discipline and not talent. It can be the preacher, who at the age of 21 has unusual pulpit power. The salesman who began his career with a remarkable record of completed deals. The woman who graduated valedictorian of her class. It tends to be those who never realize that the mind must be pushed, filled, stretched, and forced in order to function. Natural talent takes such people only so far and lets them down long before the race is finished. I, I, I read that a long time ago. But that hit a nerve with me when I read it because I was at a point in my life where I was really frustrated. Because quite frankly, I didn't know why I was having such a tough time and I didn't know why I was having so much difficulty and I didn't know why the goals and objectives that I had set were not quite, they weren't working. I didn't understand. Incredible giftedness. They had incredible people skills and they had an incredible network. Caleb didn't have that. Now, when we're young, we can get frustrated by that because all we see is that our goals and our dreams are not being realized. But you know what happens in the early years? And this is what happened with Caleb. In the early years, God was sovereignly working in his life. Uh, some things were developed in Caleb's character. Things were developed in, in Caleb's life. We don't know. We don't have any information. We don't know anything about the early things that happened. We don't know about the challenges he faced as a slave in Egypt. We don't know uh, specific incidents. We don't know anything. All we know is the outcome of those experiences that shaped him. And the first time we get a glimpse into his life is at Canish Barnea in Numbers 13. You thought I forgot about Numbers 13, didn't you? But see, what happened in Numbers 13, Moses picks 12 uh, spies, one from each tribe. Note in verse 13, uh, in verse 2, God tells him to make sure that he gets a guy from each tribe, everyone a leader. Caleb was a leader. Joshua was a leader. 
The other guys were leaders. You read through 13. They go into the promised land. They, they, they scan it. They do the reconnaissance. Um, they, they see the greatness of the land. They see the, the beauty of the crops, and, and they see all the... Uh, it's a remarkable land. Uh, they come back in verse 23 uh, with a single cluster of grapes that's so big two guys have got to carry it. Verse 25, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us. It certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And they go on and they tell them about this land. Verse 28, Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the, the, the giants that were in the land. Now look at verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. And he said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying out, a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There we also saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. Uh, this is amazing. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. See, these ten leaders, you've got Joshua and Caleb that are saying, God will take the land for us. These other ten guys are overwhelmed by the fact that there are these giants in the land that they can't handle. Verse 14, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and all the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, uh, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would we that we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? Uh, what happened is the ten guys persuaded the congregation. See, that's why you never go on congregational rule. Where'd that come from? Where do you find that? Hey, usually the, hey, listen, quite frankly, if you know anything about churches, usually the congregation is immature. There's spiritual leaders in the church. That's why you've got qualifications in 1 Peter 3 for the, for the kind of men who are to lead a church. They're not to be novices. They're not to be new believers. They're to be men of proven character. They're the ones that make the decisions for the body. Anyway, that's another issue. <laughs> Just threw that in for you, Baptist. <laughs> Look at verse 6. Then Joshua stands up. See? These guys are taking a stand. And, and uh, look at verse 10. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. I, I mean, you've got a full-blown uh, issue going on here. You've got rebellion. And so God basically says, all right, we've got a problem. We're going to deal with the problem. And they are not going to go into the land for 40 years is what's going to happen. Uh, uh, jump, down, jump down to uh, verse 20. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And when he says pardon, I mean, what you've got here is that God's considering wiping them out. Moses intercedes. Now, once again, for those in the room that have been influenced by open theism who thinks that God doesn't know the future, 
because you read from time to time where God changes his mind. And there is this movement called open theism that says God doesn't know the future. Um, because how can God know the future if he changes his mind? You have portions in scripture where it says God changes his mind. But the question is, did God know he was going to change his mind before he changed it? Okay. I pardon them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which were all the men, but especially the ten who are leaders, who are responsible, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of these who spurn me see it, but my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully. You might want to underline that. Has followed me fully. We're going to see that again. I will bring the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Hmm. Um, to the other guys, he says, look at verse 29. Your corpses shall fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb and Joshua. That's it. Of, of that generation, only Caleb and Joshua. Here, here's where I'm going with this, guys. In the early years of Caleb's life, we don't know a whole lot what happened to this guy. But when you're a slave, once again, let me say this. I don't think he had a lot of success in his early years. I don't think he had a lot of things go his way. I don't think this guy had a lot of things falling into place. Can't tell you all that happened, but let me tell you this. Some character was developed in this guy's life and in his heart, which enabled him to learn to stand alone and to not be influenced by the group. Um, several months ago, I, I, I talked about the feminization of men. And there's a guy named um, Stephen Clark who's written a book called Man and Woman in Christ. And he talks about this thing in, in American culture and in American churches where we have feminized men. And, and I won't go into it all tonight, except to make one point. He says that one of the traits of a feminized man is that a feminized man must have the approval of the group. Caleb was not a feminized man. See, God had worked. And, I'll tell you, and how does God work? Listen, Caleb did not have an easy life. See, that's what we're after. That's what we want. In our 20s, we want things to fall in place career-wise. We want things to fall in place in terms of our dreams and our hopes and our ambitions. I don't think that happened for Caleb. But you see, it's, it's in those tough times. It's in adversity. It's in hardship. It's in difficulty. It's where faith is tried and faith is tested. Guys who have success, a lot of it, early and consistently, it tends to hurt them. Because, see, you don't learn a lot from success. All you learn from success is comfort and affluence. But, see, that's not where you learn the lessons of life. Things happened early in Caleb's life that forged his character, that gave him the guts, along with Joshua, to stand alone. You say, well, he didn't stand alone. He stood with Joshua. Yeah, I know, but here's, here's what I think. They... Did Joshua stand alone? Yeah. Did Caleb stand alone? Yeah. They just happened to stand alone together. My point is, if Joshua hadn't stood, Caleb would have stood. And I think if 
Caleb hadn't have stood, Joshua. These guys had character that was forged in their life that caused them to stand alone. There just happened to be two of them. That's what I'm saying. Now, so in his early life, he had a lot of disappointment. But around the age of 40, you see the metal of this guy's heart and the metal of his life. See, the decisions we make early on determine the kind of men that we're going to be. And, and today where we are, the decisions you make, the decisions I make, determine the kind of men that we're going to be. You see, in a sense, I think I said this here recently. We're writing our own obituaries. That's what we're doing. Maybe I didn't say that here. I, I spoke for a friend of mine who, who's got a company, and uh, he asked me to come in and talk to the guys that his executive team, and they're all believers. And I went in, and uh, just before I got there, he called me on my cell phone. This was just a couple weeks ago. And one of the men, uh, one of the guys in their company, not on the executive team, but middle management, the guy had, had a heart attack the night before and died. The guy was a believer. And so they were all talking about the guy and his life and all that. And I got up, and I said, you know what's interesting is um, there's going to be a day in the future where they're going to be sitting around this room and talking about you. And really what we're doing today by the decisions we make and the choices we make and the character issues and the integrity issues, quite frankly, what you're doing is you're writing your own obituary. That's what we do every day. Now, there's a second phase of his life. Um, and this is the period of time that basically runs from the ages of 40 to 78. The years of being 40 to 78. Note back in Joshua. Note if you would. Note verse 10. Now remember, they're getting ready. To, they're getting ready to portion the land. And he says, "Now behold, the Lord has let me live, just as He spoke these 45 years, from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am 85 years old." today. Um, basically, what happened was this. They had to wander for about 38 years before they could actually go into the promised land. And when you put all the information together, it took them about seven years to do the southern campaign and the northern campaign and to get where you are in chapter 14. So this guy is 85 years old. Um, What that means is this. At the age of 40, there was a bitter disappointment that took place, not because of his sin, because of the sin of the other men. And Caleb, along with Joshua, they had to wait nearly 40 years to go in to the promised land. Then they had to wait another seven to actually take the cities and then to apportion the land. Here this guy is, 85 years old. The point is this. This guy had a tremendous setback in the middle of his life. A tremendous setback. He, he had an unforeseen uh, setback. See, that's what often happens in what we call middle age, in midlife. Uh, Norman Wright has written on middle age. And let me give you a paragraph from Norman Wright. Um, he says, what is middle age? It is a time of life which ranges anywhere from age 35 to the mid-50s. How many of you guys are between 35 and 55? Don't you put your hands up. You can get them up. <laughs> okay. 
It is also a state of mind. As a person senses the passage of time, his values and view of life begins to change. It is a time when he comes face to face with fulfilled and unfulfilled dreams, achievements, goals, and relationship. With middle age comes the opportunity to develop potential and take on new challenges and direction. It is also a time of great responsibility, business decisions, family decisions, community and church decisions, and responsibilities all weigh upon the person in this prime time of life. It is a time of realizing potentials and accepting limitations. Now, here's what happened to Caleb right during that time. You gotta understand something. They're going on that reconnaissance mission. He had all kinds of hope. He had all, I mean, he's looking around at this land and he can't believe this. He's been a slave. For the first time in his life, he's got the opportunity. He's gonna have land. He's gonna be able to provide for his kids. He's not going to be shackled by a system that he was in for the first 40 years of his life. I mean, he's out there with Joshua and they gotta be pinching themselves. Can you believe this? Look at these cities. I mean, look at this real estate. Look at, the, look at, this, look at these crops. We're gonna be able to give our family stuff that we never had. This guy had hope, this guy had a future, this guy had plans, and this guy had dreams, and he couldn't get back to report to Moses and tell them what God was going to do for them. And in a short congregational meeting, and many pastors have had this happen, his hopes and dreams were dashed. You see. Uh, quite frankly, what happened was, because of the sin of the others, they had to wait nearly 40 years. They had to wait. Joshua and Caleb had to wait. Uh, his plan was interrupted. His dreams were put on hold. Now, that often happens at times in life. Maybe, uh, maybe you had expectations that your marriage would be in a certain place or that there would be a certain level of, um, of companionship and it's not there. Uh, we have things happen uh, career-wise that get interrupted. We have things that happen that are unexpected and unplanned. Uh, and see, any leader that's ever been used by God, if you study their life, they've had this experience. Because you see, for God to develop a leader, he's got to take him through some deep and dark times. He's got to take him through phases where the dreams are dashed. In fact, uh, you can hear different teachers who will talk on what they call the death of the vision. It's not uncommon in the scriptures. In fact, it's common for men that love God to have their visions and their hopes and their dreams utterly dashed and utterly uh, driven into the ground. And then God takes them through a process of disappointment. He takes them through a process of waiting. He takes them through a process of prolonged obedience and obscurity where they're not well known, where, where they're not having, quite frankly, a lot of success. But what, what is God doing? In that period of time, God is developing that man. Uh, God is taking that man through courses that you can't take at Dallas Seminary. Uh, God is taking uh, a man through issues of integrity and issues of obedience and issues of 
submission and issues of uh, integrating the scripture into his life. It's a tough process. It's a hard process. Uh, it has the potential. And, and see, it's different things for different guys. Everybody's got a different story. Everybody's got a def different testimony. But, but here's what usually happens is something happens to you and you get nailed. You get blindsided. You get hurt. Uh, it can happen from a, a thousand different angles. But the things that you had in place and the things you were striving for and the things that you were hoping for, they don't happen. Um, Chuck's teaching on Job. So what happens to Job? His life's going pretty well. Boom. What happens? Well, God's taking him through the process to make him a better man. And he was already a great man. He's the greatest man in the East. See, this is the normal Christian life. And, and, here, and here's a big part of the test. When that happens to you, when, when your plan is demolished, I mean, I, I mean bulldozed. When, when your dream and your hope implodes and, and folds like a pancake, here's always the issue. The issue is, are you going to trust God? The issue, are you, are you going to submit to God? The issue is, are you going to hang in there with God, or are you going to become a bitter man? Um, I read an article by J.I. Packer. You know, you know this phase I was telling you about when I was kind of a, a young guy? I was a young guy at one time. And I saw some of these guys having success, and it really was kind of grating on me. It was really kind of bothering me. Because uh, I wasn't having much success. And, and you know what? I really wanted it. Uh, you, you know what's interesting? I wanted success more than I wanted holiness. And that's kind of dangerous when you're in ministry. It's kind of dangerous when you're a Christian accountant. It's kind of dangerous when you're a Christian welder. It's sort of dangerous if you're a Christian truck driver. Because what God is looking to develop in our lives is likeness to Christ called sanctification. Uh, it's a process he takes us through. Uh, but sometimes we experience setbacks that shake us to the core. And we don't understand why it has happened, why God has allowed it to happen. Wasn't that Job's situation? That, that's all, you know, all his buddies are coming along, as, as Chuck is showing, and they're all giving him their perspective. Surely something's wrong here. Listen to what J.I. Packer says at these events when they hit us in life. He says, stop, look, listen. Here is a perfect instance of a kind of spiritual perplexity, which I dare to affirm that every child of God experiences sooner or later. Be warned, it can be appallingly painful. And if you are not prepared to meet it, it can, be, it can embitter you, maim you emotionally, and to a great extent destroy you, which it be said is Satan's goal every time. What happens is that you start finding yourself feeling that God is playing cat and mouse with you. Having lifted you up by giving you hope, which is what he did to Caleb, he now throws you down by destroying And then Packer says this. So if you are hurting because of what you feel God has done to you, and you do not find scripture speaking to your condition, now catch this. It is not that the Bible now fails you, 
but only that, like the disciples, you do not know it well enough. Did you catch that? It's not that the Bible has failed you, it's that you don't know the Bible well enough. And let me tell you something. We got evangelical churches right now that are full to the brim, that are growing like crazy, that are what we call seeker-sensitive. And they got multiple services. You got to park 48 miles away. You got to shuttle in. You get, and, and there's a lot of action. There's a lot of music. There's a lot of fluff. There's a lot of this. And you don't have any meat. And you don't have any vitamins. And you don't have any minerals. You got a lot of hype. You got a lot of fluff. You got a lot of cotton candy. You got a lot of excitement. And when the devastating experiences of life happen, what happens to people that are in churches like that? They fold. Why? Because they have not been taught the Word of God. They've never been taught Job. You know why? Because Job is a tough book. But let me tell you something. We're all going to have our Job experience. But you see, it's a lot easier to talk on Sunday about the 14 steps to success, isn't it? It's a lot easier to talk about this or that or this or that, but it's tough to talk about Job. But Job's real life. See, see, if we don't instruct people in the Word of God, when they get hit by life, they collapse. I love what Packers, and, and they get embittered towards God. Because this is not what they've been told it's supposed to be. And why have they been told that? Because they haven't been, they haven't been taught the Bible. I love that line. I want to read it again. So if you are hurting because of what you feel God has done to you, and you do not find Scripture speaking to your condition, it is not that the Bible now fails you, but only that, like the disciples, you do not know it well enough. See, the explanation for life, and the explanation for the setbacks in life are in this book. So when you study Job, when you study Caleb, when you study Joshua, when you study Moses, when you study Paul, when you, st when you study Daniel, I mean any of these guys, did they not have all this in common? Their hopes were dashed. They thought they were done. They thought they were finished. Uh, see, see, this is where bitterness is a real possibility. Because it's not working out the way that you thought it would. Uh, now, now remember, Caleb, hey guys, Caleb and Joshua had done nothing wrong, but every day for 38 years, their hopes and dreams and ambitions were on hold. That, that land was on the other side of the river, and what are they doing? They're just, they're on hold. They're just waiting. They're waiting, and they're waiting. And, and I'm sure at times it felt like it never, it, it would never stop. Martin Lloyd-Jones said something one time. He said this. He said, every trial, every adversity, every hardship has a beginning, a middle, and an end. The problem is we don't know where we are, do we? In that adversity, in that hardship, you don't know where you are. Now, here's, here's a danger. Sometimes we conjure up expectations of God's time frame. Did, did I read the quote to you from James Stockdale a few weeks ago? 
um, this guy interviewed Stockdale. You know, Stockdale was in the Hanoi Hilton for like nine years and uh, was really the leader of the men in the Hanoi Hilton. And, uh, and he's out now at uh, Stanford and teaches there. And uh, this, this guy went out and interviewed Stockdale. And he was asking him about the guys who made it and the guys who didn't make it in the POW uh, camps. And, and he said to Stockdale, I mean, I wish I had it here to read it to you. It's priceless. But basically, he said to Stockdale, he said, so who were the guys that didn't make it? And Stockdale said, the optimist. The guy said, the optimist. He goes, yeah. The guys who said, we're going to be out of here by Christmas. And then they said, we're going to be out of here by Easter. We'll be home for Easter. And then they said, we're going to be home by the 4th of July. And see, about the third year, they went down for the count. He says, the guys who made it were realist. Realist. The guys who purposed in their heart, who said, no matter how long this takes, I'm going to be faithful. See, they set up false expectations, and sometimes we do that in Christian life. So we get our time frame, and when God doesn't meet it, what happens? We get bitter. You got to work in God's time frame. No matter how long this takes. What did Caleb do? He followed the Lord fully. Let's go back to Joshua 14. I got to watch my time here. Um, I want to go back and read from chapter 7 because we've been introduced to something and, and you're going to see it again. I was 40 years old. When Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. Now catch this. But I followed the Lord my God, what? Fully. So Mo Moses swore in that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. And now, behold, the Lord has let me live, Caleb says. Just as he spoke these 45 years, from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I'm 85 years old today. 
I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. And as my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that the Anakim were there with great fortified... He's talking about 45 years before. With great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenazite, until this day. Catch this. Because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. All right, let me give you several principles here as we pull this together. Here's number one. And, and, and I'm now in period three, jo, uh, uh, Caleb at the age of 85. Okay? This is the third significant section of his life. Here's the first principle. Caleb never forgot God's promise. Never. In, in verse nine, he mentions... Now remember, they got the guys on the east side settled. That now they're going to settle the western bank. And he says, Joshua, hold on a second. And he brings up the promise in verse 9. Moses swore on that day, surely the land on which your foot has trodden, the, the land that he checked out, shall be an inheritance to you and to your children forever because you follow my Lord my God fully. And that was reiterated in Deuteronomy 1, verse 36. He brings that up to Joshua because he lived on that promise for 45 years. How do you get through an extended time of disappointment? Let me tell you how. You do what he did. You live on the promises of God. See, that's why when you are in hardship and difficulty, you have got to keep your Bible open. You can't shut this book. When we get bitter, we shut this book. And when you shut the book, you lose your only source of hope. Because when you read this book, it tells you what God is up to, and you read the promises of God. You've got to live on the promise. And once again, see, you, well, well, I haven't realized the promise yet. No, you haven't. But see, that, that, that's the whole point of the promise, is that at the right time, God will fulfill it. So you've got to have a promise. Number two, here's the a, here's a second principle. Caleb's greatest accomplishment of his life came in old age. It came at the age of 85. His whole life was preparation for the last chapter of his life. God had developed such character in this guy. This guy had been so deeply tested for so long that when he finally gets his shot, what he basically does is he asks for the most difficult land with the most formidable enemies. They had basically wiped out the Anakim except for little pockets. And there was a section left. He says, let me have them. Let me have them. And like, and like Joshua last week, when Joshua faced the biggest battle of his life, I asked the question, do you think Joshua had trouble sleeping that night? I don't think he did. Because for so long, he had seen the faithfulness of God. I think that's where Caleb was. He had no sweat with those guys. Because he'd seen God been faithful for so long through, 
but faithful through hardship and through difficulty and through disappointment. See, sometimes we think that our best days are behind us. I don't see that here. You say, yeah, but Steve, it's so tough and it's so hard and it's so difficult. Yeah, well, sure, yeah, yeah. That's what he could have said. But see, it was for a purpose. God was getting him ready. God was forging him and making him into a man that could do the greatest work of his life. It was ahead of him. See, see in our, our, our culture doesn't know anything about that. See, we're, we're so intoxicated with youth in our culture. Have you noticed, you know, you know what I'm, I'm starting to notice? All these news reporters now, they're all punks. I mean, excuse me. I mean, there's these young guys, snot coming out of their nose. They don't know anything. You guys, you guys know what I'm saying? Where do they get these guys? What the heck do they know? Not much. Not much. But you see, we've got that we're intoxicated with youth. George Bernard Shaw, what did he say? Youth is such a wonderful thing, it's a shame to waste it on young people. Uh, note, uh, here's the third principle. God gave Caleb the gift of health. God doesn't always give this gift, but he gave it to Caleb because of his faithfulness. That's verse 11. Uh, basically, he said, I'm 85, and I'm as strong as I was when I was 40. Here's the fourth principle. There was a secret to this guy's life. And the secret is found in verse 14, it's found in verse 8, and it's found in verse 9, and we've already read it. The secret is this. Caleb followed the Lord fully. And there's a secret for every guy in this room. So let me ask you something. Where are you in life? You one of those... 20-year-old guys with snot still coming out of your nose? I, I don't mean to, that's a terrible thing to say. But look around, we got a bunch of old geezers in here. You see? We all used to be 20. It's great to be 20. Uh, man, what a great time of life. You want to know the secret? You know, want to know the secret in your 20s? It, it's not going to a Tony Robbins seminar. It's not this, it's not that, it's not this school. It, Tell you what the secret is. You follow the Lord fully. It's never too early to start following the Lord fully. Fully. So, are you in your 20s and you've had some setbacks? You've been laid off? You had this happen? You know what? You follow the Lord fully. All he's doing is doing in your life what he did in Caleb's life. So, you're in your 30s? What's the issue in the 30s? In the 30s, you're trying to climb the ladder. You don't want to be in the same place at 39 as you were at 31. You're trying to climb. You're trying to progress. You're trying to achieve. Nothing wrong with that. Just follow the Lord fully. In your 40s, what happens in the 40s? Your body starts breaking down. Doesn't it? I mean, look at you. Look at me. Our bodies start breaking down. I mean, we, we develop this enemy, and the enemy is us. Our body breaks down, you see? Uh, and, and you know what? Our careers can become an enemy because we're trapped. Because we've got this mortgage, and we've got responsibilities, and we've got tuition, and we've got all this, and quite frankly, we're not that fulfilled, but we're trapped. 
Even our career can become an enemy. Our marriage can become an enemy. Our spouse. Because she's under as much pressure as we are. And you see, it's not like it was when we were engaged. You remember that? Kind of gags you now to think about it, doesn't it? Because life was so easy when you were engaged. Why was it so easy? Because you didn't have any responsibility. You didn't have any kids. You didn't have a mortgage. You weren't planning on retirement. You didn't, you didn't have anything. It's cotton candy. But see, now you're stressed, she's stressed. And if you're not careful, you can, you can turn on each other. You start making assumptions about I'm going to tell you something. Chuck nailed me on Sunday. He nailed me. On that first principle he gave, I said, I was sitting by Graham. Remember Graham? I sat by Graham, and I didn't have a pencil on me, and as soon as that, I'm listening to him, I mean, he's cutting me up in little pieces. He, he was. And as soon as that thing was over, I grabbed a bulletin, and I, and I said, Graham, tell me those. And I wrote down the, the first principle, which was something like assumptions can... Let me, let, let me read that. You need to read this, too. You know what I mean? No. Look at this. Assumptions reduce understanding and insights. And you know what? Mary and I had been up the night before for about three hours talking because I had made some assumptions about her. I hadn't even realized. I'll, I'll tell you what. I hadn't even realized it. I was in such a quandary Saturday night going to bed, I, I thought, Lord, you know what? Because she was hurt. I knew I'd hurt her, but I couldn't figure out what had happened. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know. But, I, but she was hurt, and I honestly couldn't figure out what, and I walked in there, and Chuck, and that was the one. I had made some assumptions that got in the way of understanding. And she broke her foot, and it was bothering her all week. She stayed off. She didn't come to church. I made a beeline home, and we talked about that. Because, see, you can turn on each other. You don't mean to, but you do. So, so what's the key when the marriage starts struggling? What do you do? You better follow the Lord fully. You see? See, no matter where you are, you're in your 50s, 60s, Fighting health at 70s. Doesn't matter where you are. What is the key? What's the secret? Follow the Lord fully. Fully. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. There's the key, guys. Because God sees that. And God responds to that. And God honors that. Caleb went through some tough times. And some of us are going through some tough times. But I'll tell you what, this stuff is true. See, the Bible tells us how to live. I hope you're encouraged. I want to meet this guy, Caleb, when we get to heaven. I want to have lunch with him. Isn't that going to be great? Have you ever thought about that? We're going to have all these guys, you know what? You're going to have a chance to sit down. You're going to have a chance to sit down and talk with Caleb. Tell me, run that thing by me again. Sit down with Joshua. Actually, sit down with David and talk to him. I want to talk to Adam. Tell me what it was like in the garden. I mean, was it, like, it was like this. Yeah. And then you, that must have been devastating. 
It's unbelievable, guys. We're waiting on that. But it's worth waiting for. So, Lord, in the interim, we pray to you. Thank you, Lord, for telling us the truth about these guys. This guy didn't have an easy life. This guy, quite frankly, Lord, didn't have a whole lot of success. He didn't have a real impressive resume. At least the world wouldn't think so. But, Lord, you were sure pleased with him because of his heart. Didn't do everything right, just as we don't. But we are so grateful, Lord, that you look at our hearts. We screw up and we mess up and we uh, don't understand our wives and we get mad and angry and all this stuff, but we come to our senses and we come to you and you look at our hearts. Lord, for the guys that are in a long stretch here of disappointment and difficulty, I pray that you will encourage them. Let them know their best years are not behind them. You still have work for them to do. They wouldn't be alive if you didn't have work for them to do because they are your workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared beforehand that we might walk in. Don't let us lose hope. Help us to be encouraged tonight. And Lord, I pray for each one of us that if we've made some assumptions and maybe misunderstood uh, our wife or a son or a daughter, that you would give us clarity and that we could go and repair that and fix it as they sense the genuineness of our heart. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you have a plan for us and that we will live with you forever. This is a momentary affliction, and it's a light affliction that we experience, not to be compared to the glory that we're going to experience. That encourages us in the interim to follow you with our whole hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, guys, we got two more weeks. Then we'll take our break, and we'll pick it up in early August. We're going to do men and women. Roger. Yeah. Hold on, guys. That's very good. Yeah. Yeah. Time is the brush. That's good. I'll plagiarize that. That's good. <laughs>